Hey, welcome to the Happy Ramp Podcast. I'm Ted Cluck, joined as always by my good friends and uh, and radio colleagues, uh, Ronnie Martin and Barnabas Piper. Uh, gentlemen, it's uh, it's getting dark and foreboding outside my uh, my office here, and um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of concern about the weather here in West Tennessee. Uh, Big R, what's it like in uh, in Ashtown? Beautiful Ashtown. Yeah, man, it is uh, a lot of concerns here. Um, everybody was really depressed that it didn't snow around Christmas, mm. and now that we've kind of experienced some snow and some uh, below twenty degree weather, everybody is bemoaning that it's snowing in below twenty degrees. So yeah, that's absolutely. kind of the that is the landscape and the mentality right now. You know what's funny? Re offices. Um, I realized I was at a, I was at an academic conference earlier this week, and people in academia use the word office as a verb. Um, as in I I office office there. Yeah. I office in Jennings hall. I used to office in the library. Is is this a real, is this a thing that people do in real life, Barnabas? Uh, well in the business world, you can turn anything into a verb. Like you just, interesting. Give me an example. Oh, let me see here. Um, well, I don't know. Like you just, there's things like incentivize, which I'm not even oh, sure yeah. is a real word. You know, incentive yeah. is a word and incent yeah. is a word, but incentivize is not. You just, you just throw a suffix on the end of it. I'm trying to think of some other ones. I feel like leverage was one of those. I yes. feel like leverage used to be a noun. Now it's a verb. Like yeah. we're going to leverage that or how can you we used, leverage that? Yeah. You used to, you used to gain leverage or have leverage or use yeah. leverage. Now exactly. you just leverage because yes. we, 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 we could cut a one syllable word from that sentence. <laughs> Dude, exactly. It's so funny. This is a fascinating start to the program, fellas. Keep keep going with this. Keep Good feedback from this. our host, Ronnie J. Martin. <laughs> All right. Keep oh, us on track. Please, I bet pastors do the same thing as much as anybody. Those uh you know, they're Verbing they're gonna, they're gonna go they're gonna go missionalize things or something. Oh, I think you just coined a new phrase and I think we need to write that book. Missionalize, guys. How do we feel about that? Dude, missionalize, just a one word title. Yep. Missionalize. I love it. I love I'm it. In. Don't tell uh you know, Jeff Anderson or Steve Timmis, but we're going to take what they have created and just uh, build on it. You know, I love it. Well, speaking of books, gentlemen, we got, uh, we got a great listener suggestion for a topic and the, uh, the, the suggestion is this wondering what books, uh, that are out there that haven't been made into movies would make for great movies. Um, so books that would make great movies. Do you guys have, uh, guess have thoughts on that? Man, uh, books that would make great movies. I, I've been impressed with some of the things they have turned into movies in the last few years. I don't know if the movies have been amazing, but like uh, Ender's Game, for example, was one that has a, a rather ambitious mm-hmm. ambitious project. But great book that that should have made a great movie if it was done Yeah, it well. didn't go too well. The movie didn't turn out I never well saw the movie one. because that, that was a – you know, sometimes you read a book and you're like, man, that would be a great movie, but only if it was perfectly done. I know. They kind of – it's like they did not um... – yeah, they didn't execute that in the way that, say, something like The Hunger Games was executed and it was done well mm-hmm. with the right stars and you know the right screenplay and all of that to go along with it. But yeah. yeah. You know what I really dug is um, – and this one was in I, – I, I read this book. It was an Eric Larson book called The Devil in the White City and I read this, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. It's one of my favorite books. Mm. And um, also, finally, also came up on our year-end book list episode It as did, well. yes, with, with many jokes. But um, it's finally getting made. Into a uh, a movie with uh, Scorsese at the helm Ooh, and DiCaprio oh, nice. as the lead, dude. That's Ooh. a power combo. Yeah, that's no. going to be big. That DiCaprio as a uh, as a psychotic killer is a really, or is he the guy trying to catch the psychotic killer? No, he's the he's the killer for oh, sure. Man, yeah. that's a, that's a good choice. I'm so glad they didn't pick Johnny Depp for that or something. Yes, 
Exactly. Have you guys seen the recent uh, Decap picture? Uh, the Revenant? Yeah. Haven't seen it yet. I've heard good things. Yeah, I've heard it's amazing. Have you seen it yet, Big T? I've not seen it yet, man. I heard it's pretty graphic. I heard, uh, yeah. I heard he like, climbs inside the, the body of a dead horse at some point. And, oh, they just stole that know. from Star Wars. I mean, I yeah. feel like that's just a, that's an image that I could live without seeing. <laughs> you know, I could probably go the rest of my days without seeing a guy like climb inside of a, a dead horse. But uh, I don't know. I probably need to see it. I'm, I'm hearing enough good buzz that. Uh, yeah, it looks great. He's probably going to win the Academy Award for it, too. It's one of those types of end of the year films that totally, just explodes. Totally. Yeah. Which he should, I think he should he should win one, you know, at some point. He's, yeah, uh, I think he should, man. He's one of our he's one of our A listers. But this is one of the things I wanted to talk about was, you know, kind of on the topic of books that we uh, wish would get made into movies. What about books we uh, wish wouldn't have gotten made into movies? <laughs> well, the one I'm thinking of right now is uh, Blue Like Jazz by our boy Donnie Miller mm. and uh, Steve Taylor, who of course is from. You know, kind of from my scene, from the music industry, from years past, and again, he's a couple generations before me. Who has but, a pretty uh, legit he, reputation in that industry? Am I right? He actually did. He he'd actually done some really, really legitimately great things. Great right. songwriter, and uh, kind of was a, uh, you know, kind of had a way of uh, kind of talking about uh, you know things in Christendom in a way that was uh, you know kind of poked fun at a lot of our traditions and cliches. And mm-hmm. he he did it in a really great way, but. But he kind of turned into sort of a of, of a filmmaker, and he kind of had a lot of uh, ambition, uh, you know, kind of trying to break into that particular industry. And so, I think one of the first things, if not the first thing, he did a couple of years ago. And Ted, I think we were in Toledo when it came out. Was he uh, he made Blue Like Jazz into a movie? Did you guys ever see that? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, that, um, that's another one that I just sort of looked at and was like, I read that book. And in my wildest imagination, I cannot figure out how it would make a compelling movie. Well, dude, it was a, it was a book without a story. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it, there, were, there was no compelling really narrative to the book. So how, how would it translate onto there, the screen? There also wasn't really like a character. It was, it, was, right. it was sort of meandering reflections. And that's not a shot at the book because that can work right. really well if it's written well. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't work as well on screen because there needs to be character – and or plot, ideally both, and that lacked both. I agree. And, and you know, honestly, though, I'll say this about Blue Like Jazz. People who I trust have told me that it's not nearly as sad and, and crappy as you would expect it to be. The movie? The movie, yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, the book wasn't sad and crappy, so. No, right. That, that, yeah, so, I mean, it's, I think it's not as bad as we would think, but that's still yet not a ringing enough endorsement to make me want to see it. Um, yeah. Big R, you you've not seen the movie. I've not. I mean, I, I admittedly I saw. Um, I think I saw the first five or ten minutes of it. Okay, and it but just that might have been a Hallmark movie. It's hard to know. You know what? It's well, <laughs> the Christmas look, sweater. Let, guys, <laughs> Sorry, I know. Before all the ha ha with my with my Christmas uh, fiction fascination comes out, um, let me just say this along those lines: is that it felt no pun. Okay. It felt very Hallmark movie the way it started. Okay, and um, it was one of those. Flesh things that out a little bit if you don't mind. I, I, well, I love it was just yeah. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's probably hard to articulate in the sense that it it kind of just started and it didn't start very compellingly, and yeah. the dialogue sounded a little forced. And it was one of those things where I was about ten minutes in, and I just said. You know, I just think there's something better I have to do tonight, and I think I did. I think I did something better that night. 
So nice. I feel that's like that's how far I go. I feel like Blue Light Jazz, for example. I mean, it just that one's that one's not even a story. The book isn't even a story. So turning that into a movie is uh is a really odd choice. But I feel like most of the books that have that I have enjoyed the most wouldn't make great movies or it'd be really difficult to turn into a movie because so much happens inside a character's thoughts. Mm. And that doesn't come out on screen very well. So like mm. uh Yeah, give us an example of that. Well, so there, there's a book called uh, The Brothers K, not The Brothers Karamazov or however mm-hmm. you say that one, but The Brothers K, and it's by, I think it's David James Duncan, something like that. Uh-huh. And it's it just sort of traces this family story over the course of about 20 years, and you know the father was trying to make it as a baseball player, and it's just, it, it is all family interaction, family relationships, family drama, how the different brothers uh, and siblings kind of fall off in their own different ways. And it's an it's an, an incredible novel, mm. and it would be it, it's just way too complex to turn into a movie. I feel yeah. like uh, Peace Like a River uh, by Leif Enger is kind of the same way. So mm. much happens in terms of emotions and thoughts, and and in there's a spiritual aspect to things, and mm-hmm. that doesn't play very well on screen either. Usually. Yeah, I, I agree. I read Peace Like a River, which was just flabbergastingly great, and yeah, there's so right there's so much like thinking. In the movie that, yeah, I, I mean, in the book that you don't know how that would, tra- I mean, you would have to get some really incredible actors, it, but I, I feel like if they tried, if they attempted it, it just wouldn't even resemble the book enough. Right. When it's, and it's yeah. why Christian movies tend to be kind of cheesy is because they take things that happen internally and try to verbalize them and it just comes off kind of cheesy or like a cliche or something mm-hmm. instead of there being that sort of deep soul aspect to things, which is, I mean, it's why guys like John Grisham write really good books to turn into movies because they're basically writing a movie script. Absolutely. It's just, you know, it's like uh, problem, conflict, bad guy, good guy. You know, it's all sort of formulaic and it plays so well on screen. Well, how about let's let's bring up this point then. Like what about some of the the recent in the last few years – sort of this new attempt at doing a legitimate take on some of the Bible stories. You know, every, everything from Russell Crowe in Noah to this new one they got coming out called Risen, which is, you know, the post-resurrection. I mean, it, it's like those things. I, I, know that, I know that the Christian community is thrilled that um, the production levels are like, you know, are <laughs> raising a little. They legitimize the us. Like, the stories, I mean, no, the stories always seem to lack – you know, really, uh, uh, you know, uh, a little uh, a truth, number one, and uh, any, anything of approaching a more compelling kind of thing, you know? Yeah, the Bible ones, I, I'm trying to remember. I think the last Bible movie I saw was... Uh, the Bible? No, I, it was the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen any that were made since then. It's a, it's a few years old, so well, if, you're, yeah. if you're in the audience wondering yeah. when that came out. Spoiler alert, Israel escapes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh no, I did see I did see at least one. I saw The, uh, the Passion of Christ, too. That one. And okay. that, see, and of all of the biblical movies that I saw, that one was by far the most, uh, was the most compelling to me. But a lot of that's because that's one of the stories that the Bible gives the most detail on. It's true. So that they, they didn't have to guess about what happened next and fill in the right. blanks. Like, I didn't see Noah because I was like, there's like one chapter on what Noah did. Yeah. God told him to do something. He built a boat. They floated around with some animals. And then the boat landed. And then he got drunk and committed incest. And uh, and like that's that's all happens in 
like 40 verses. You know, I don't agree with that interpretation at the end there, but we can talk about that on another uh, broadcast. Yeah, I skipped the high point with the rainbow and the covenant <laughs> and those kinds of things. I was – I'm thinking from a movie maker's perspective, like what could we put in there that makes this compelling? Ra- <laughs> rainbows don't grab the attention quite as much as, as drunkenness and – It's true. Cravenness. You know another movie, another one that came out that was West actually really, really great and didn't get a lot of hype came out about six or seven years ago. Is this one called The Nativity Story? I and, saw that uh, one. That was surprisingly it. good. It was great. I thought it was fantastic because they, they just they really really stuck to the story as 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 well as you can. You know, needing to make some turns and twists uh, for 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 it to be on screen. But I thought it was really emotional and mm. really compelling. And it was they were plausible twists. Absolutely. See, I would like to see in terms of so with, when the listener sent in the question, they said what books ought to be made into movies. I'd like to see some more of the nonfiction stuff. You know, various like war fiction, or I'm sorry, war war books almost always make good movies. Like sure. uh, we we were soldiers once and young. Great yeah. book, uh, fantastic movie. Those kind of ones, or what uh, what Spielberg and Hanks did with Band of Brothers, or even The Pacific, which wasn't an awesome miniseries, but production quality wise, it was top notch. Some of that stuff, or like Jackie Robinson story, uh, mm-hmm. any of that non the nonfiction stories tend to make really really good movies because they again they don't have to try to figure out what makes a good story. Like the story is there and it's already good. Yeah, maybe I'll uh, adapt the naval history book that I'm reading right yes. now. Yes. <laughs> That I'll be blogging about, and yeah. I'll, I'll put down the screen uh, the screenplay that I'm working on currently called "The Shepherd's Pouch." So, <laughs> going to be a Christmas film. You and Ronnie are collaborating on that behind my back, aren't you? We are. We are. Yeah. We are. Except, uh, the Shepherd's Pouch is going to be bonkers. It's going to be amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna write a tell all in about forty years about how I gave you the idea and I didn't get a dime <laughs> out of it. It's so funny because Lifeway's head. putting it out, Piper. I thought you would have known that. Uh, now, they so. they they have pushed me out of the loop. I guess. We can be in litigation for like a decade over the royalties. That's right. The royalties won't even cover the uh, litigation costs. Exactly. Exactly. We'll all go broke litigating it for years. So on that happy note, man, let's uh, let's move on. Um, Let's move from uh, books that would make great movies and move into uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of parenting talk, gentlemen. Um, Somebody suggested that we talk about uh, this phenomenon called uh, helicopter parenting. And, And Barnabas, give us a... Give us a little uh, little definition, man. A few sentences on what that means and what that is. It's it is the it is the style of parenting that is ever present and ever cautious in a child's life. So uh, you don't just send your kids off to school; you drop them off, and then you you go in and you're the room mom, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you can't just send your kids out to play like we used to as kids, where they're just gone for an afternoon. There's, you know, periodic check-ins. There's, it's just, it's the phenomenon of always being in your kid's business about everything. And, but it's, it's like the protective aspect of it. It's not just sort of wanting to lovingly know how they're doing and what's going on, but trying to protect them from everything in the world all the time. And it probably involves about a gallon of Purell a week. And why why the overprotectiveness? Because here's here's my okay. So I heard I heard a stat, and I don't know how to substantiate this, but I heard a stat um, that said you know when you look at the things that parents are really really frightened about, which is like kidnappings and those types of things. I heard a stat that said that like today there's not any more than there were back in our day when our parents let us roam for like five days in a row without ever seeing us. 
It's just that the 24-hour news media coverage we have, it actually heightens those things when they do happen. So it makes it feel like they happen more frequently. But in actuality, like the world, you know, and I'm putting quotes around this, the world is just as safe now as it was like back in 1981 in, in, in those types of ways. You know, and I asked my parents about that because, you know, as, as a parent myself now, I remember what they used to let me do. They'd be, they'd basically be like, it's summertime, come home by dinner. And I was right. on my own, you know, and I could come home for lunch if I wanted to. But I mean, I just get on my bike and go ride around and play ball and play with friends and disappear for hours at a time. If my kids did that now, and I don't consider myself a helicopter parent, but if my kids did that now, I would freak out not knowing where they were. And that's, and I'm, I don't think I'm alone in that. I don't think most people just let their kids go. And so I asked my dad, I said, what, what was the difference? You know, do you think there was less of this stuff going on then? And he said, he said, I just don't think we knew much about it. So we, there was right. a, there was a feeling of safety, but I do think that the feeling of the, the lack of safety that people feel now is probably, uh, as much of an illusion as the feeling of safety was back then. Guys, sure. what do you think? Uh, what do you think is the end game here in terms of church culture, where it seems like you know helicopter parenting is kind of celebrated? I think in 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 our culture, in the sense that you know we have all our own sort of homeschool co ops now, and and you know all of our our own Christian sports leagues, and I mean, it seems to me that we might be in danger of raising a generation of of people who just have no no experience interfacing with the outside world and and what's more no interest in interfacing with the outside world am i am i right on that or off base or what what are you guys seeing where you are i i don't i don't think we're any different than the secular world mm. you know because so we when we lived in when we lived in suburban chicago we lived in this it was like this idyllic little sort of uh pleasantville kind of community um, and Dude, which burb, if you don't mind me asking, uh, it was right on the Glen Ellen Wheaton border. So, I mean, okay. it's, yeah. I mean, it is, it is, it's Pleasantville to a T. Dude, it is. It's, it's idyllic, man. You know, tree lined streets and whatever. And it's, it's this 80 degree August day and we're driving on the street and there's not a kid to be seen. Mm. Whereas like back, and I don't think I'm exaggerating every summer day when we were growing up, there was just kids everywhere because sure your parents kicked you out of the house and said, stop being annoying and go play somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, I think it's not just the church who's, who's having this effect, but just parents everywhere where by isolating our kids, by setting up play dates, instead of saying, go make friends, mm. you know, everybody's sort of breaking down in terms of the, the normal interfacing with the world around them. There's not the same sort of social structure there used to be. Um, I mean, it's, you can even see it when you go to a coffee shop, you know, the the idea of a cafe used to be that you'd go in and everybody sort of say hi to the people that they knew. Sure, sure. Now you go in there and you don't know the baristas and you don't know the people at the tables and you sit down with your book or your laptop or your phone and, and you do your discipleship with the one person you're there to meet and you leave. And so I, I think it's just sort of a, it's a strange sort of anti-social culture because everybody's suspicious of everybody. Like parents don't let their kids spend the night at friends' houses anymore. For fear right. of the older brother or the dad or whatever. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and yet everybody feels as though they're being social because they're on quote unquote social media all day long. So and, maybe and they're, we're and they're our, all part of the PTA. Right. Right. Which is yeah, maybe, it's crazy, man. Maybe I, my I least guess favorite I, organization. I guess I worry about you know the the mandate that we have to go and make disciples, given everything that you just said. You know, if, if we have no 
experience in slash interest in like going and engaging people, how are we going to do that? I think well, yeah, you're, what you're talking about is you're talking about we want to be um, we want to remove all risk. Yes, and we right. think by removing all risk in our kids that somehow, some way, it's going to prepare them better, not just for life. You know, because they're going to be thrust into the real world doing real jobs, and they'll get acclimated to that. But I think not, not with back, our help, though. What's that? I said not with our help. We're certainly not helping them get ready for that. Like the real well, world yeah, is going to bite that, a lot even, of people. But even yeah, we're true. talking about what Big T just mentioned in terms of like in terms of like being the church, in terms of like being disciple makers. Um, I, I mean, I think it I think it probably affects that even more uh, adversely and more negatively. You know what I mean? Because that when we talk about the Great Call. Um, I think if we are so afraid to allow our kids to have to engage to a point where they have to face adversity, well, then wh- you know what kind of adversity are we are we preventing them from facing in terms of just being disciples? It, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, so I think the implications of that I think are even further reaching than saying, okay, you got to learn how to work with other coworkers, exist like in a college environment. It's like, well, yeah, but you're just hanging. You know, anybody can learn how to hang out in those environments. When we're, when we're talking about it going much deeper in terms of our faith and, and, and you know, sharing our faith in, in those types of environments, I mean, we've crippled them, haven't we? I mean, well, it's just – And I think, we've, I think we've bred deep suspicion into, <clears throat> into our kids and into ourselves. It's very, very hard to reach out to a neighbor when you won't let your kids go in their house. You know, you you can't go, you can't go in their house. We don't know them. We don't trust them, but we do love them and want them to know Jesus. Wait a minute. How do those two things mesh? You know, that's, that's sort of the like stranger danger does come into conflict with go therefore and make disciples except of strangers because they're not safe. Yeah. Big T, what do you, what do you think about that in terms of like, cause you have two boys yeah. Like how how do you feel about that in terms of your neighbors? You're in a new neighborhood now, obviously. Sure. How, sure. Yeah, lay Dude, that I out. I get it. I mean, I, I get I get the temptation as a parent to be ultra controlling and ultra sort of master mindful of everywhere my kids go and everyone they speak with. But I also I mean, given everything that we've just said, like I, I really the older I get, I think the more I appreciate like the experiences that I had as a kid interfacing with other people because I feel like it prepared me for all the interfacing that I do with people in the world now. So I, I guess my fear is, you know, both in terms of evangelism, there's that piece, but also in terms of the piece that Barnabas mentioned, which is just flat out survival in the world. You know, are, are, are our kids going to be completely shell-shocked when they, you know, live in an apartment complex without us for the first time and have to go into an office and have their first job. And I mean, are they going to have their minds blown by, by all of it? And, you know, I, I, I guess that's, that's the fear that I have with all this micromanaging. And I, and I, I get the sense that people feel like they can, they can sort of game their own kids sanctification that way. Like, I mean, reform people can talk in, you know, flowing white papery language about, how important sanctification is, but we live sometimes as though it's, it's the last thing on earth. You know what I mean? Um, like if I keep them in bubble wrap their entire lives, they'll never have to be. Yeah. We're not so eager for our kids to become sanctified through some, through challenging circumstances. Right. And I I just fear that if we all, if, if if we as a generation of 30 something parents are all like kind of hyper bubble wrapping our kids, like what earthly good are they going to be to anyone? Um, 
and, and are we just are we so reformed that we're saying, well, you know what, the Holy Spirit is going to save everyone, and and I don't want my kid to have any sort of tangible role in that, you know, and, and given that I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. I mean, I know that, you know, the spirit is powerful enough to do the saving without me or my kid. But I, I also think there's, there's validity to the mandate to go out and make disciples. And and the fact of the matter is doing that is not always going to feel a hundred percent safe. Well, and, and every biblical example you see is the opposite of how we are trying to raise our kids. Right. It is it is pushing out into risky right. circumstances and unpleasant places and public discourse and like all of these things that, you know, talking to strangers, you know, pe- people in the Bible times, you know, Philip jumped up in a chariot with somebody and rode with him, some stranger, just just to tell him the gospel. Like if yeah. if if your son Ted jumped in somebody's car and said, "Well, I just wanted to tell him about Jesus." I doubt you'd feel like that was the yeah. Holy Spirit's leading. Yeah, discipline is coming. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm not saying that that – I mean there, there's obviously a level-headedness to this. But like when I did youth ministry, we had parents who were freaked. They would freak out about where we would take their kids on short-term missions trips. And, you know, oh, sure. I mean, and some of these are short-term missions trips like from the suburbs of Chicago into the city of Chicago. Did you <laughs> talk to homeless people? Yes, that's why we were there. Though, you know – so that that's so that's so counter the biblical example that yes the Holy Spirit can do a lot of things but there is also a, a depiction of how God tends to work and how God has called us to be and and then and then not to mention just this I think we're socially crippling them in terms of right teaching them to be a bunch of sissies like take mm-hmm. some risks learn how to fall down and get up and brush your own knees off you know well let me that, ask that you guys this because you because you guys are dealing with younger kids than me so do you guys feel some level of pressure though because I think part of it is like the the uh, to the level that you're going to feel judged by other parents with how how much you let your kids out you know how how much you take your hand of control off of your kids. Like, mm-hmm. how would you, like, if your neighbor knew that you just, like, Ted, you have boys, so if your mm-hmm. neighbor knew that you just let your boys, like, wander one summer, you know, afternoon from, like, 8 in the morning till 5 at night, I mean, they, they would be judging you. I mean, how does that affect you? Dude, they would. And, and honestly, I think we'd be much less inclined. You know, we're not inclined to do that anyway. I mean, if anything, we're, you know, I'm definitely more controlling than my parents were. Yeah. Um, for, for good or for bad. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not so much pressure, Big R, as it is, or, or judging. I mean, it, it's just the prevailing church culture that we're in. You know, everybody homeschools. Everybody, like, does the same co-op. Everybody does the same stuff. They all play in the same, like, Christian basketball league. And it's not so much judgment. I mean, we don't feel judged by any of those people for sending, you know, Tris to public school. It's just, like, if you want to have any sort of a social life in your church, you end up sort of wanting to do the things that other people are doing. But then you wake up and realize, wow, I haven't, I haven't talked to one person from outside the, you know, the bubble of, you know, my Christian college or my church in the last three months. Yeah. You're saying like you are, you're still just staying within the parameters that have been set for you by the, by the church culture that you're, you're already in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, boys, this has been, uh, this has been fascinating. We've got one more, uh, kind of culture engaging topic to talk about. Um, and it's a topic of like consumer charities. So uh, the way that uh, companies will attach sort of a, a charity mission uh, in order to get 
people with you know white guilt or other motivations to uh, to or, buy the or just prom- deep yeah or just deep pockets or just deep pockets exactly and and it, and it speaks to whole, this whole idea that you know people like throwing their money behind a cause it makes them feel more noble to feel that you know some underprivileged person somewhere is going to get something out of my probably extravagant purchase. Um, I don't know. How, how does this sit with you guys? Barnabas, what's, uh, what's going on here? Well, I think it, there's, uh, there's two, there's two sides to that come to mind. And one is the consumer side, which is, yeah, it, if, if I'm going to go buy a pair of shoes or buy a cup of coffee, I do get sort of a nice little, uh, sort of a, a little boost of self justification. If I know that some small fraction of that purchase is going to meet a need somewhere, even if I don't know how that's going to happen. That's that was the advertisement. I'll, I'll believe it. So I I feel good about my consumption. The other mm. side, though, and this is the side that I'm a little bit more intrigued by, is the starting of these businesses. Mm. And you know, is there's a spectrum of of motives behind this. There's the the entirely pure motive where as as much of the proceeds as possible are going to a good cause. But then there's the other side where it's just sort of the, the cause becomes a, it's just a marketing tactic. And you see this with businesses like target, you know, target has done so much for the community. No target is trying to make people feel good about shopping at target. So people will buy more things at target. I mean, that's right. They, I don't think that target has a conscience and cares that much about local public schools. And you know how I know this? <laughs> Cause they canceled their 1% donation to local schools this year <laughs> because they're financially strapped. Yeah. A conscience would say we can eat 1%. Sure. And so it's, it's that kind of stuff that I look at and go, why, why do you need to, why do you need to, to profit off of a cause? Why can't the cause be the cause and the profit be the profit? And you just, you, you market based on the quality of the goods as opposed to the feeling that you're giving somebody for purchasing them. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I had somebody ask me one time at a, I think it was like a writing conference and I was selling some books and, um, it was a, it was a younger person and he asked like completely serious, like, are you going to keep, the profits to your book, like your royalties, are they going to go to charity? And I was just like, Hey, there's not going to be that many royalties. I mean, given the arc of my career, I, I'm, I'm not expecting like it to be raining cash, like a 50 cent video. Um, but the other thing I said was like, yeah, like this is how I make my living. And I mean, he was almost shocked that, you know, really like you're, you're not, you know, you're not giving to, ch- I, I said like, I'm tithing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my own personal giving, but, uh, but, but yeah, there's almost, I think in younger people, the expectation that, you know, your, your product is going to come with some sort of social justice motif, uh, attached. It's, it's like, there's, I think you mentioned this before we got on just the, that idea of there, there being sort of a capitalism is inherently sinful mindset. So we, we need to, we need to do something to, to put some soul in it or to undermine it or, or something. And I, what I mean, what have you seen from the, uh, the many college students you have interacted with just kind of their attitude towards these things? Yeah. College students love that, man. I mean, they're, they're easy marks. I think for any company that's sort of, you know, marketing, marketing anything to that, to that age group. I mean, you attach a little, a little social justice to it, man. And, and the thing could go, could go bonkers. Tom's obviously was the example from like five years ago. Everybody was wearing, you know, really flimsy canvas shoes around for a while because, <laughs> you know, because of the, the crack marketing job that that company did. And, and 
more power to them. I mean, they, they knew how to sell a product to their audience and, you know, people felt so good about themselves and so good about like putting the Tom sticker on their laptop and, and, you know, wearing the crappy flats, um, around and, uh, but, but then as all things do, it, it jumped the shark and people got tired of it. And, uh, and now it's something else, but, uh, but yeah, it is strange. I mean, it, if anything, it's sad to me just how easily manipulatable we are. You know how how easy it is to throw some junk product at us if we if we feel like we're you know doing good because of it. Um, I don't know, Big R. Where do you see this play out, man? I don't know. You know, I've never been. I'm I'm one of the least hippie people I've ever known in my life. Um, so I've never been a big cause guy. Mm-hmm. I just I don't I don't feel very easily manipulated by causes. Um, it's just not where my head is wired and where it tends to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like to, um, you know, I don't have any, I don't have a, you know, when I, you look into something like Tom's, you know, and, and there was a lot of the marketing went into, you know, it was, it was kind of a, if you, if you sort of watched how they marketed it, number one, they created a product that was really appealing. Um, sure. You know, my kid wore Tom's, she loved Tom's. Mm-hmm. She was taken in at the age that she was at, that she was taken in by Tom's. It had nothing to do with the cause because she mm-hmm. was a little, she was at that age where it was a little pre-cause, sure. you know, but I know people that were up and, you know, getting into their late teens or early twenties, it went from just being fascinated with the, with the product to being more about the cause, but then also loving the product. So I think that there's something fascinating when, you know, the, the guy, you know, the guy that really marketed the branding for Tom's, I mean, they were, they spent a lot of time on the cause aspect of it as much as they did uh, with the design aspect of it. So mm-hmm. I can actually look at something like that and go, well, look, man, I, I mean, it was, it was a legitimate product. There was a, it, you know, it had a, there was a stylistic intent behind it. As well as, hey, we're trying. We are trying to help some people here. So I think with that, I think that's an example of to where um, for me it worked on both levels. Mm. To where I thought, well, there's it feels like there's some legitimacy uh, to it because they they went so far down the road to market both aspects of it rather than just saying forget the product, man. All we care about is the cause. Well, it's like, well, you should kind of care about the product too, right? And so I. I guess with these types of things is I, I'm just if I'm noticing at all, I'm just trying to see what it is that they're most concerned with pitching me. Yeah. Well, I'm on the Tom's website now, man, and they have uh they have morphed from just a shoe company into um you can get all kinds of things through Tom's now. Uh coffee mugs, obviously uh leather bound journals. That was a that was a natural uh, Yeah, I wonder what their big seller is right now within their product line. Dude, I don't know to be honest, man. I, I, th- I think the shoes are still up there. I mean, just because, it, look, if if uh, if forty something year old dudes still wear Vans, there's yeah. a there's about a, a twelve year segment worth of people who still wear Toms for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got bags. I mean, you can get your overpriced canvas bag. You can get your. Is it you is know, it still all based on the if I buy this, somebody in need gets one of these? Like, if I buy a coffee mug, does some uh, thirsty college professor get a coffee mug or something? Dude, no. I mean, hopefully, some like third world college professor in, a, in like a hut somewhere will get a coffee mug because you know? that's, that's what they need is a coffee dude, these mug. coffee mugs I, I kid you not man they're 24 bucks goodness sakes 24 was bucks there, for- i mean was there any i i forget man was there any sort of uh was there any there was no there was no religious intent attached to uh, no no not tom's, that i was there no okay. tom's they they had part of the marketing genius behind tom's was the uh the buy one give one 
yeah, idea. Yeah. So I buy a pair of shoes, and for every pair that is purchased, a person in need gets a pair. And so you you feel like you are buying two pairs of shoes, essentially, one for you and one for someone in need. <clears throat> and now a, a couple years ago, this article came out about how Tom's and other companies like them had actually undermined local economies around the world because mm. there's just been like this massive influx of free stuff. So local businesses <laughs> were just put under because nobody would buy their stuff anymore because they could get it. Well, that's free. so interesting. <clears throat> that, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's true of a lot of charity efforts. I mean, you can go read like toxic charity by Bob Lupton and some of these other books that just show how our intent on, on sort of throwing charity at people often hurts more than it helps. But no, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about this because, yeah, I mean, Tom's may have been like like Ronnie said, there was a style to it. People really liked them. They liked the way they looked, et cetera. Um, and they they were the cause wasn't bad. Maybe the execution was maybe it wasn't planned very well. Um, but I don't know. It just th- there's always something that makes me a little bit squeamish when I'm walking into somewhere intending to buy good for purely consumption, you know, purely consumptive reasons. So a nice cup of coffee and I'm now choosing between a nice cup of coffee and a nice cup of coffee that is, you know, locally grown or I'm sorry, locally roasted or uh, free trade. And the original farmer in, in, you know, Guatemala is going to get paid fairly and those kinds of things. And just, like, I don't, I don't even know if those are real claims or if that's just a marketing spin to, to hook my business. Dude, I can tell you this, man. The uh, the next pair of hipster sunglasses that you purchase, Barnabas, needs to come from Tom's because uh, you can get into a model here. I'm just going to read you the name of it. It's called uh, Coffee Grain. Ooh. This is a type of sunglasses, um, and it's $159, man. So, I mean, definitely don't like accidentally sit on those in your car. Don't uh, don't leave them at the ballpark. I um, I felt guilty for spending a third of that on a pair of sunglasses not that long ago, and right. I haven't lost them yet. But uh, so, all right. Well, the next the next time I buy hipster sunglasses, I'll keep that in mind. Actually, if you want to go bargain, man, we can get you into this model called uh, Amber Ale um, for one hundred and forty nine. So, so they're really, like craft beer sunglasses, sort of like craft beer. Yeah, they're naming, they're naming <laughs> I take sunglasses. It, their sunglasses are all beverages. Yeah, exactly. They're all beverages. So maybe maybe when you buy a pair of these sunglasses, a poor person gets a craft beer. Do they have maybe. like a like a pure cane? <laughs> they have like a pure cane sugar extract. Yeah, maybe he gets a mug of craft beer. Let, let's see what else we've got here. We've got uh, promoting drunkenness the world over. When are we going to see a line of Christian craft ales, fellas? Oh, dude, it's got to happen. In fact, I. Well, I no. mean, how has that well, not happened? I have read more than one article about like Christians in the brewing space. You know, they 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 work at brew pubs or they they well, are no, no, they I are brewers. That, Dude, they're a time it does all about that. But yeah, it's just but a guy that literally has like a brewing like a Christian craft like ale company. Like, dude, it's incredible that has not happened. Guys, you know let me I mean? let me float a concept by you. Okay, wait for it. Throw it. Happy Rant Brew Pub. Oh, huh. Happy Rant like we could call it the Hoppy Rant Pub Brew Cash. Pub. Oh, pipe. That's why you work in marketing and That's we right. don't. Wow. That's brilliant. Yep. I they, guess I guess our friends at calvinistswag.com need to start designing a new uh a new, pint new sweatshirt class. for us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hoppy Rant. But just remember, I'm still Baptist, so I'm not allowed to officially participate in any of this. I That's can, so funny you say that pipe because all of my SBC friends are like the 
you know they can't stop guzzling all the all the hops. Yeah, which is why to- which is why the Missouri Baptist Convention wants to kick them all out. For example, <laughs> oh okay. Uh, it means I'm going to get kicked out right now because I just like you know there's just there is a rift now. in this world that we uh, that we have to tap dance around. <laughs> well, you know what, and let me add my caveat too. I want nothing to do with the uh, the hoppy rant ale, so we'll just sell that concept. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> given, oh, big given key. It's great to not be a Baptist, isn't it? Uh, baby, I'm I'm working for a Baptist school now. Yes, so you are. My, my life is. Oh different. my gosh. My life is That's rough, but uh, it's good, man, and I and I love my gig. And guys, we've uh, we've wandered to and to and fro on this program, haven't we? That we have. And are we not uh, are we not piloting a new sign off today? That's up to you, my friend. Uh, give me a name. I need. Uh, you, we're we're doing just random sort of Christian authors, aren't we? I mean, I th- I think something <laughs> should be able to dawn on you in the next like twenty one seconds for sure. Mm. All right, we can, we can let that play. Uh, and in the meantime, while I'm thinking during those 21 seconds, I want to use the 21 seconds to uh, give some love to our boys at Resonate Recordings. Uh, yes. They make our, our voices sound uh, lush and appealing, uh, and, uh, and they will do the same for you. Uh, so check out Resonate Recordings for all your podcast and music recording needs. Uh, with that, guys, uh, I've already mentioned how to and fro we've wandered um, so, until next time, Donnie Miller. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.